So I think we have a classic film that will endure for hundreds of years. It's a it's a movie that I've been told by people, hundreds of people have told me they have seen it three, four, five, six, seven times. I've actually had a large number of people tell me it's probably the greatest movie they've ever seen in their life. You know, there were a lot of people that I told the story about that didn't get it. You know, it's like, why would anybody want to go see a movie about a soldier that won't kill or pick up a gun? The guy's a coward. That's not an interesting movie. And I said, no, that's the whole point. October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to a special interview episode of the Avenus History Podcast, episode number, it doesn't matter. The voice you just heard belongs to Greg Crosby, who was a producer of Hacksaw Ridge, a hit film on the life of Desmond Doss. We're going to be joined also by Steve Longy, another producer of Hacksaw Ridge, And these two men have just published a brand new book on Desmond Doss called The Birth of Hacksaw Ridge, How It All Began. Greg, I want to start with you because you are the prime mover in this story. How did you first hear about Desmond Doss? Well, my wife and I, we make a line of vegan meats and jerkies for about 21 years now called Spice of Life. And, you know, we're in regular markets like Ralph's and, you know, big market chains, but we're also like in Whole Foods and things like that. And anyway, one day I got a call. This is like 1999. I got a call from Stan Jensen, who at that time, he's now, uh, I think, the director of communications for all of Canada for the church, for, for, for the SDA church. But in those days, he was the manager of an ABC store in Glendale, California. So he called me up and he, you know, you know, he introduced himself and said, you know, I, I managed the ABC store in Glendale, Greg, across from the hospital. And uh, he said, you know, I tried your meats at one of the markets and I really liked it. He said, we're going to have a huge kind of weekend celebration coming up. Uh, we're in, we're going to have food tasting and people can demo their products and all that kind of stuff. And I really love your product. Would you think you'd like to come and demo your product? And I said, sure. So. Anyway, I, we went there to the event. It was awesome. He was great. And during that day, he came up and said to me, Greg, if I could borrow you for a second. And he said, you know, I, I, you know, I know you're in the film industry and your grandpa was an icon, you know, Bing Crosby. And you probably have a lot of connections in Hollywood. And he said, I've always had a childhood dream of seeing one of my heroes be made into a movie who was an Adventist. And he said, you know, there's a book called The Unlikeliest Hero, which I would love to give to you if you would take the time to read it. So, so I took it, you know, but to be honest, being in the business and being around Hollywood my whole life, I have people come up to me who claim to be writers and they have ideas. And so I have gotten thousands of things over the years. So, you know, they stack up on my desk and I don't like to be rude. I mean, I really do want to take the time to look at things and help people, but sometimes I just can't get to them right away. So I took the book and I said, sure, Stan, I'll take a look at it. So anyway, I took it home and it sat on my desk and, you know, more things came in. I mean, you know, Matthew, if you've ever seen my desk at times, it's like piled so high, I can't even see the person in front of me. So uh, my wife and I went out one Sunday and I said, wow, I got to clean my desk off. So I started cleaning things off and, you know, throwing out stuff I didn't need and so on and so forth. And I finally came across the book and I said to myself, oh, man, I forgot to look at this book. So I just opened it up. You know, it was Sunday. It was quiet. Nobody was home. The house was quiet. 
So I start reading, and then four, year, four, four hours later, I have finished The Unlikeliest Hero, and my wife walks in just as I'm turning the last page, and I'm crying. I've got goosebumps. And she looks at me, and she says, are you okay? And I said, I just read the most incredible story of my life, and it's all true. And, uh, I mean, I had goosebumps, man. I was like, wow, you know, like God was speaking to me. So uh, that's how it started. So I called Stan the next day, and I said, Stan, I read the book. I'm so sorry it took six months, uh, but I've just been overwhelmed. And he said, no, no, no. He said, I didn't want to bother you. It's a God-driven project, and I knew if you were meant to be involved, you'd call. So no worries. So that's how it started. So that's how I found out about Desmond and kind of went from there. Okay, so you read Desmond's story, and then what? You went out and made Hacksaw Ridge the next year? No, 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 no. The movie took 17 years to get made from that day. You know, first of all, it, you know, Desmond didn't want to have a movie made. I'm not the first guy who tried to convince him that making a movie was the right thing to do. Uh, he had had major players in Hollywood, you know, from old Hollywood come to him you know, from like starting from like four years after the Okinawan War. I mean, he had like major producers, even Audie Murphy, who was another recipient of the Medal of Honor turned actor producer, approached him and wanted to make his life story. And he said, nope, don't want to do it. Don't like the movie business, never been to a movie. Uh, I think Hollywood's an evil place. Thank you. Goodbye. So, I mean, this went on like, I mean, you know, 20, 30 guys over the years tried to go to him and he turned everybody down. So, just getting him to say yes took years, you know, and I can actually honestly say I think I'm the first person who ever convinced him that making a movie was the right thing to do. So after I did that, then I decided, you know, I know Hollywood hates to read full screenplays, uh, and it takes a long time to write one. So I decided to write a story treatment, like which was like 12 pages, which kind of condensed his life and what he did in the war. And... Uh, and that's really what, uh, you know, eventually got to David Permit, who was one of the lead producers, a guy who has produced pretty darn close to 45 films. I mean, he's a very prolific producer, and that's who I took it to. And uh, he ended up liking it, and that's how it all started. The way I convinced Desmond to say okay to the idea of making a movie is because, you know, one of the times we sat down, I said to him, I said, you know, Desmond, what's one of the first things that, you know, the seven-day ad that is purchased? And he looked at me kind of funny, put his glasses down from his eyes a little bit on his nose. And he said, well, a printing press, is that what you mean? And I said, yeah. I said, why did you guys buy that? And he said, well, he said, you know, we wanted to tell it to the world. It was a way to reach the people and communicate, you know, through a newsletter and, and publications. And I said, okay, Desmond, exactly. I said, the movie business today is the printing press of the 1860s. It's how you reach the people. I said, I think your problem is that you're blaming the medium rather than what's in it. Hollywood is just a way to reach people. I said, you read books, right? He goes, oh, yes, I read my Bible every day and have my whole life, and I read spiritual books. And and I said, okay, but there's also satanic books and evil books. It doesn't mean you shouldn't read books. Don't blame the medium. Blame what's being made in them. I said, this is a chance to make something that can really inspire humanity. You know, your story is really special. You are a real hero. You're not a hero that wears spandex. You're an everyday guy that made a difference and never sold out and had integrity and always did what was right. And in times of great need, you had miracles happen. I said, I'm convinced that you had divine intervention take place when you were in the army for four years. I mean, there was multiple times, as you probably know, where he should have been killed and he was not killed. 
you know, you know, guns jammed. I mean, you know, the enemy couldn't see him. Fog came in. I mean, there was like always some reason they couldn't kill him. Yeah, Desmond's whole story is just absolutely, absolutely fascinating. Fascinating. If you haven't seen the movie or read the book, you're just going to have to go do this because you're you're missing out. Now, the question I have, Gregory, is that it seems like you began this process around the year 2000. The movie took about 17 years before it was finally released. Is that normal in Hollywood? Is it normal for movies to take nearly two decades from conception to release? <laughs> well, I guess it just depends on how strong your conviction is. I mean, there's a lot of people that just give up and they, you know, they come to Hollywood and they, they want to have the glamour and the money and the girls, and you know, all the baloney that doesn't really mean anything. So those kind of people fade out. But the people that really have a conviction and love the art of film and really want to do something special, I suppose if you hang out long enough, yeah, you can probably eventually get it done. I've always believed that if you have a noble goal, and you work really hard, and you have talent, and you put God first, that miracles will happen. I mean, I still say to this day that the, the fact that we got Hacksaw Ridge made is a miracle. You know, it's a tough economy. I had never produced before. I've been a screenwriter for 25 years, and I've made a very good living writing, but I had never produced, and everybody looked at me and said, Greg, you're a great writer, but come on, get real, dude. You're going to be looking for over $50 million. It's a tough economy. You're middle-aged. Uh... You've never done it before. I mean, you know, you're, you're in a dream world. And I said, nope, I think I can get this made. And I hung in there and refused to give up and was patient and asked God for help. And sure enough, it got made. And we were nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture. So it's a miracle. I mean, it, it really is. Let me tell you something. It's so hard to get a movie made. Even I mean, unless you're Spielberg and you can write your own check, it's really hard to get a movie made because Hollywood runs on fear. And the executives at the studios that make up their minds to fund finance movies a lot, most of them are Harvard MBAs or business guys. They're not filmmakers. They don't understand what's creative and what's not. So they'll judge a project by who's bringing it in rather than what it is. So like if, you know, if, if uh, Sylvester Stallone wants to make a movie or, you know, any major star, they'll tend to give it a go ahead because it's them. So they're, they're trusting that person to know what's going to be commercial. So for a person who doesn't really know you or doesn't have a track record, they're not going to risk their job on giving you $50 million because if the movie's made and it doesn't make money, they'll be working back at Sears on a nine to five. And, you know, so it's, it, there's a lot of fear in Hollywood. And so the fact that we were able to filter our way through all that, to me, is a miracle. It was a God-driven, this movie was made by God, I'm convinced of it. And the fact that Mel Gibson said yes, I mean, come on, this was my first choice to direct the movie. And, you know, we went through that whole period where, you know, Mel wasn't touchable because of his anti-Semitic remarks, and his personal problems. And, you know, it just came around and he turned the movie down two times, even after that, even after we got it, and he didn't want to do it. And then uh, something happened. It's God again, as far as I'm concerned, he just changed his mind. And once he said yes, then it just started the steamroll. But I'm just saying, my gosh, here I am, a guy who I'm trying to get my first feature film produced, haven't done it before. I want Mel Gibson. I mean, everybody was looking at me like I was nuts, you know, and it all it all happened, Matthew. It's just crazy that it all came about. I mean, it's got to be it's it's a miracle. And it doesn't it doesn't matter if you come from an iconic family. 
you know, I told you this, I think, in, in one of our calls, but, you know, it'll open up the door and people will hear what you have to say. But if they don't like what you're pitching, you know, they'll say, loved your grandpa. Nice meeting you. You know, and I got, you know, there were a lot of people that I told the story about that didn't get it. You know, it's like, why would anybody want to go see a movie about a soldier that won't kill or pick up a gun? The guy's a coward. That's not an interesting movie. And I said, no, that's the whole point. You know, a lot of a lot of people didn't get it. They get it now, but they didn't get it then. So it's really it's it's really kind of funny. It's a very complex. So anyway, it was a series of events and patience and divine intervention and all that stuff. And I, I must say the end result, you know, turning it over God, we really do. I think we have a classic film that will endure for hundreds of years. It's a, it's a movie that I've been told by people, hundreds of people have told me they have seen it three, four, five, six, seven times. They brought their grandpa and they brought their cousins. And, you know, it's a movie that's inspiring and it's a feel good movie and people want to see it over and over and over again. So, I've actually had a large number of people tell me it's probably the greatest movie they've ever seen in their life. That's quite a compliment. Yeah, it's. I've heard it described as a love story in the middle of a horror story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was. It was a very horrific. Com- you know, that's another issue is we had trouble when it was in uh, development at Walden Media. Uh, Philip Anschutz, who's the CEO of Walden, is a very big Christian and refused to make any movie over PG-13. And you know, we had issues with it as filmmakers because we said, you know, if you only make it a Disney-esque kind of war, war, it's not going to have the impact as as it would if you showed how Okinawa and the war really was. To me, the greater dichotomy is to put a guy like Desmond who wouldn't touch a gun and put him in a canopy of total insanity and violence. You know, it makes the comparison so much greater. If you did it like a Disney film, it would have been a... It would have been okay, but it just wouldn't have had the impact. So, and Mel agreed, and that's why we took it away from Walden, and, and Cross Creek got involved, the company who put the majority of the funding up, and they bought it back from Walden, and, you know, that's another miracle. I mean, even the chances of that happening is a miracle. You know, having a, having a third-party company come in and pay off Walden and all the money they had put up over the years it was in development, and, uh, you know, getting Mel to say yes, and it's just, it's just fa- it's fantastic. It's incredible. And anyway, I'm just so honored to have been part of it and have had been able to, you know, bring it to Hollywood and get people in Hollywood to see it. Ever since I was a little boy, Matthew, I've always wanted to make movies that had something to say. I just don't want to make movies to make movies. I'm not in it for the money and the girls and the fame. I don't need all that. I grew up in an iconic family and I had fame around me my whole life. You know, it sounds like the American dream, but it's not always what it's cracked up to be. And uh, if you're not happy inside and you don't have a solid base, there's no amount of money and fame and girls and cars and boats and mansions that are going to make you happy. It'll buy you temporary happiness, but if you're not happy inside and you don't have God, you are thirsty and you have nothing. Those are all temporary things. Right, right. Now I want to back up here for a moment. So Desmond finally agrees to let Hollywood make a movie about his life. Then what? Steve, why don't you jump in here? Desmond was trying to figure out what the, you know, what had him proceed. And so he decided he, he didn't know enough about Hollywood to really know how to proceed. So he uh, transferred his rights to the council. That would be the Desmond Doss Council, which was set up in the year 2000 to oversee his legacy. And he entrusted them to, you know, oversee how things would be handled from that point on. Um, they decided to 
um, option the rights to a, another filmmaker named Terry Benedict. Terry Benedict is actually where I come into the story because I was a student at Southern Adventist University when his documentary on Desmond Doss, The Conscientious Objector, uh, was first seen. And Desmond Doss was there. It was the only time in my life I've ever seen him. It's just cool to know where my story intersects with your guys' story. And Terry isn't done in this story yet, is he? I mean, he makes The Conscientious Objector, which is a very good documentary, but it it wasn't released in theaters, that at least that I'm aware of. How does Terry continue on in the story of Hacksaw Ridge? We all partnered up and uh, hired Terry to write the first draft of the script and then uh, made the film with Bill and, uh, and Mel. Okay, so the movie gets made. It's great. You get all these nominations. Everybody loves it. Why are we releasing a book right now? Why are you guys writing a book with more stories of Desmond Doss? Steve came to my house one day and said, I got a great idea. And I said, what? He said, what about doing a book on his early years? You know, nobody's ever written a book on Desmond's childhood. And I said, well, you know what? It's a great idea. But I was a little hesitant because, you know, I I wasn't going to get paid for it. You know, write a book is a lot of research, and it took me about seven months to write it. And, you know, I have so much going on where I am making money for me to take seven months out of my life and write a book without getting compensated for it up front. I had to think about it. You know, it's a lot of work. But I sat on it and I consulted God on it. And, uh, you know, I called Steve back and I said, okay, let's do it. We're going to do it. So it was actually Steve Longy's idea. And I think it was great. Okay, Steve. So what was your idea? Tell me, why did you do this book then? I think I, I would love to to broaden the audience of the film because the film was rated R. I think that in some respects held it back. And for younger people, I think also, you know, uh, parents might feel it's a bit too violent or, you know, they just might have issues with, with some of that. So I feel like the book is an extension to the movie and it's something that can really initiate people into Desmond's story and to his life. And uh, and then ultimately they can then watch the film. But I think, you know, it's to spread the word of this amazing, you know, profit, small P or large P, but uh, definitely profit and uh you know, put forth this this concept of of service to your to your country, to your fellow man. Uh, this idea of holding strong to your faith and your convictions. Uh, you know, this book should. Uh, I, I'm hoping this book is a book that people become inspired by, and that it helps them uh, reinforce and strengthen their faith, and helps get them through hard times, and you know, helps inspire them to be the best version of who they can be. Now, you probably have some some people listening here. Maybe they're Adventists. They know all about Desmond Doss. They may or may not have seen the movie, depending on how sanctified they are. And they might be wondering, is there anything new in this book? Because what really shocked me is how many of these stories I've never heard of before. Is it just me or is it others? When you took this book to the Desmond Doss Council, were they all aware of these stories? Did you have to hunt for these stories yourselves or did the council just have them in an archive somewhere and, and give them to you to use? No, no, no. This all came from us. This, this, I, I tell you the council, they, they, they had the exact same reaction. I mean, like verbatim that you have, they're like, we don't, we've never heard these stories, you know, like, where did you even, where did you get these? (laughs) So, and obviously Gregory had to take license, you know, with some of it because you can't know exactly what people are saying in any, you know, like that. So, so obviously I don't want, I don't want to say this is like, you know, 
the, 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 you know, what, what happened, you have to, you have to kind of, you know, take, take, take with a bit of a grain, you know, because we weren't there recording it. But, you know, these were stories that Desmond imparted to Gregory when he was doing his research. And some of these stories are, uh, came from Desmond's ex, you know, his wife and, uh, you know, her book and, uh, just anecdotal information about, you know, people that Gregory interviewed that knew him and, you know, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was a lot of information that had to be uncovered. Now, once we aligned with the council, they gave us free reign on all of Desmond's personal effects, which was a mind blower, by the way, um, especially for me, because, you know, I had, I had actually never met Desmond. Um, and so, you know, I was kind of working from afar in a sense and, to be allowed to go into like a storage space where this hero's uh, personal effects are being kept was a very special moment for me. I have to say, um, I was very honored to actually be invited to, to do that. I mean, there, there are a number of other people involved in the film Hacksaw Ridge, but Gregory and I were the only two that actually had the opportunity to go see his personal effects. And, I, I mean, I'll have to send you some of the pictures. Maybe you can post them. We saw the stretcher that he was carried off the battlefield on. They have the stretcher. They actually have the stretcher. It's a mind blower. But at Loyola Marymount College, they have, and the, the Medal of Honor, they they busted that out and let us see that. I mean, it. I was in tears. Gregory and I were in tears in the presence of Desmond's effects, personal effects. Um yeah, it was a really special day, and we have some photographs from that. But um, but the council said, look, maybe there's another book or another – because he has all of these letters that he wrote. and these le- He has these love letters he wrote during the war to Dorothy, which are pretty amazing. And they were thinking about another book, you know, based on some of that content. But no, the content – everything that's in the book, we brought to them. One of my absolute favorite parts of this book – is the story of how Desmond and Dorothy met. It is so Big Bang Theory. It is so charming and awkward and nerdy and just so delightful. I would buy this book just to read this story. I love their love story. Yeah, it's a beautiful love story. It really is. And I think, you know, in the movie it's great because – you know, the actors really can capture it. But again, you just you, you just can't spend enough time there, you know. And then you have the war, which, you know, I mean, the movie for me, it, it, it kind of starts as a love story and then it becomes almost like a horror movie <laughs> um, <laughs> when you get into the battle sequences, you know. But uh, but in the book, we are able to spend some more time with that. And I think it's uh, it, it's a really beautiful story. And you can really see and feel that love between them and see how they supported each other through a very difficult time, you know, being separated for all that time. And, uh, you know, of course, the Bible that uh, Desmond carried with him everywhere he went, uh, you know, that was given to him by Dorothy. So we talk about that, and uh, uh, it is just another great story in the book. I'll tell you, the the story that I like is the one where uh, his, his mother, Bertha, asked him to run to his aunt's house for a bottle of milk. Because, yeah, I I just it I can visualize this story so easily. You know, he's running and it's a cobblestone street. He he gets the milk. He comes back and his foot gets caught on one of the the bricks in the street. 
you know, drops the bottle, shatters, there's blood everywhere, rushed to the hospital. I mean, he seems to have gotten injured a lot. <laughs> and the poor guy, I mean, I guess, I, I guess, you know, getting your hand sliced open in peacetime kind of helps you deal, be, be a little bit tougher with injury during the war. But, uh, you know, just the idea that his, that, you know, they're thinking he, he's never gonna be able to use his hand again. And his mom teaches them to pray about this, and and lo and behold, you know, after some time, I don't remember what it was, six months or something, he can use his hand again, or at least start to. And uh, I, I feel like that was formative for him in the sense that prayer for him was kind of a way of seeing what wasn't ordinarily possible. You know, it gives you hope when you're wondering if you're ever going to use your hand again, and, uh, and and so it helps you kind of look past what you can see in front of you and, and imagine some alternate alternate realities, uh, such as saving people in a war instead of killing them. Yeah, I was just going to say the other story. The, the two the two stories that really stayed with me in the book are uh, you know the kittens, of course. But when he uh, when he when they were going to amputate his leg <laughs> or cut off his leg when he was a, when he was a kid, uh, he thought he was going to lose his leg. And uh, that I, I don't want to get I don't want to tell the ending of it, but I think you know how it ends. Obviously, <laughs> he uh, he doesn't lose his leg. <laughs> but uh, there was a moment there where they were pretty much ready to do it, and uh, through faith and through prayer, and uh, he winds up uh, healing himself. But uh, it's a pretty amazing story. Uh, but you're right; he seemed to get injured a lot, but he was able to. Sh- to sh- he was able to shrug it off, uh, you know, through uh, through prayer, through his faith. You know, like I said, he he came out on the other end of it uh, a lot tougher and a lot stronger. But boy, he sure seemed indestructible, didn't he? I mean, people can say whatever they want, but I'm convinced that he was protected by God's angels his entire life. Even in my book, you know, as a kid, as you know, you know, you've read it. Uh, there were many times where he should have died from gangrene or, you know, he could have drowned in the ocean. All these things happen, but through the power of prayer and living his life and always having integrity and doing what's right, he was always protected. And that's the same force that protected him, I believe, in the four years he was in the service. You know, and people don't realize it, but, you know, the movie Hacksaw Ridge is just one part of what he did in the service. Prior to Hacksaw, he went to Leyte in the Philippines. I mean, he's credited with saving over 400 men without, without a gun. It's like incredible to me that he was able to pull this off. And I, and I also admire him because he not only had to fight the Japanese in his time in the service, but he also had to fight us in our system. So he fought two wars his way. He was a vegetarian. He would eat meat with a bunch of rednecks at boot camp. They hated him. They beat him up. They knocked his teeth out. They did everything to get him out, and he wouldn't leave. They called him a coward. And the irony is that it takes the ultimate courage to go into battle without a weapon. That's not cowardice. That's real bravery, you know, to face the enemy without a gun. So I just had tremendous admiration for him. And, you know, I believe it was a God-driven project. And, uh, you know, after 17 years, we finally got the movie made. I'm real proud of it. I think it came out really great. I think Mel Gibson did an outstanding job. And, you know, it, it sat in development hell for pretty close to eight years. You know, we we had stars like Tobey Maguire wanted to do it, and then we had, you know, Casey Affleck. You know, we had guys who were physically kind of small and skinny because, you know, Desmond was not the biggest guy in the world, which made it even more incredible. You know, he was really just a small guy. You know, he wasn't muscular. He was real skinny, scrawny. And, you know, this guy was able for, you know, 
hours at a time, pull guys on stretchers and pick them up on his shoulders and drag them over craters and dodging bullets. And it's crazy. Uh, Andrew Garfield, when we were making the movie, you know, just in rehearsals, trying to drag Vince Vaughn like 20 feet, he had to sit down and have a glass of juice. He was exhausted. And in real life, Desmond did this for like nine and a half hours without stopping. I mean, it was in horrible conditions. I mean, that movie is really the way it was. I mean, it was fog. It was cold. It was craterous and, you know, jagged rocks. That's why it was called Hacksaw Ridge, because when men tried to climb it, they got cut up from the volcanic rock. I mean, it's, the conditions were horrendous. And, you know, you got to remember, this is, a guy, this is a guy that even stopped during the battle to, to tend to the Japanese because they were human beings and they were just serving their country. You were a human being. You deserve love. And that's what I love about him. Even though Adventism was, you know, his path to God, he realized that there are other people in the world that have other paths, but he still respected them. And, you know, we, we didn't understand that. You know, I mean, we used to, you know, when we saw our soldiers saw him tending to the Japanese, you know, they put a gun to his head and said, if you do that again, we're going to kill you. He just looked up and said, look, these are human beings just like us. You know, they're doing their job, they're defending their country, and they deserve to be helped. So he really, he really had to overcome a lot. I mean, I, you know, he is a real hero in history. He, I don't think I ever met anybody like him. And when I was with him, he always made me cry. You know, he would, he'd get to a point, and you know, when, you know, he had only one lung because of complications of penicillin uh, in the early years uh, when he came back from, uh, you know, that part of the world. He, had, you know, he had gotten. Uh, you know, malaria and all kinds of problems. And so uh, they used, he got a problem with his lungs. And so they gave, they, they were just starting to come out with penicillin, but they didn't really know how much to give you. So they found out later that it was too much in the beginning. And one of the complications manifested into uh, losing your hearing. So he, he was partially deaf and he also lost one lung. So, you know, when he talked to you in the age that I knew him, he he kind of talked like this. It was kind of hard for him to breathe. And so anyway, he, he would start relaying like moments of things that happened to him on the battlefield. And dude, I'm like, I'm, I'm covered in goosebumps. It's like there was something so special about that man. I loved him so much. I mean, I didn't know him very long, but boy, the time I spent with him, I really felt like I was in the presence of God. It's just so inspiring. I can't tell you, you know. I mean, I'm starting to cry now. It's like I just, I just had a recall of sitting with him, and he's just, you know, wow. You know, this, he had such passion for humanity and to love fellow human beings and to want to help. And, you know, just the, in the world we live in now where people are insensitive to one another and, you know, their people have become so mean and nasty. And, you know, he just was such the opposite of that. He's just, he was just a good man with integrity uh, the kind of human being I don't see much of anymore. I really don't. True that. Now, Steve, you were deeply involved in this project, and yet you never met Desmond. What you know about Desmond, you you know about from seeing his personal facts, from reading his materials, from talking to Gregory. So if you could meet Desmond Doss, what would you say? Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I would thank him, I guess, first. That's my just my first gut reaction would just be to thank him. He was so humble, you know. I mean, everything I've heard about him and, and read about him, all the research, you know, this this was a man of incredible humility. Um, but, you know, I, I would definitely thank him. 
I, you know, I think I'd be speechless, really, like I am now, in a sense, just thinking about being in his presence. You know, I almost feel like crying, and you know, I, it's very emotional. Uh, I, I, you know, I'd, I would communicate probably through my emotions, and I, I would, you know, I feel like he would know. He would know very well uh, in that way um, what I wanting, what I'm wanting to say to him, and and my feelings, you know, towards him. I mean, it would be of reverence, complete reverence. I, I don't, yeah. I mean, I, I'm definitely not somebody who who's at a loss for words, and I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm just putting myself in that moment now that you asked me this, and uh, I would have probably very few words for Desmond. Speechless. All right, guys, that's where we're going to leave the interview. There's plenty of interview that uh, we recorded, did not air on this special episode of the Adventist History Podcast. So we're just going to have to leave you waiting in suspense. I think you heard enough. Go pick up that book. You can find the book on Amazon as an ebook for your Kindle. You can also go to AdventistBookCenter.com and pick up a paperback copy from the Pacific Press. But The Birth of Hacksaw Ridge, it is a phenomenal book filled with stories from Desmond Doss's early childhood. I'm not going to leave you quite yet because some of you probably heard Gregory talk about his line of vegan veggie meats that started this whole story. And as good Adventist listeners, I'm sure you're wondering where on earth can I get some of that Vegan veggie meat. Well, lucky for you, I asked him that very question. You can go to our website. It's spiceoflife.com, but in between the words spice and of are hyphens. Okay. So it's so it's spice-of-life.com. And you can it'll be delivered right to your door. It doesn't require refrigeration. Perfect. So the ground bee, we have jerkies. We have four flavors of jerky. It's totally vegan. Tastes just like meat, but it's made from uh, organic, defatted soy flour and all natural spices, sunflower oil. It's really healthy. My wife is a PhD and very much in the nutrition, and so we made a really healthy, tasty meat replacement. And like if you take the ground beef, for instance, and you make like your normal recipes, like spaghetti sauce or chili, and you use our meatless meat instead of real meat, a meat eater will eat it and won't even know that he's not eating meat. It's a great transitional product. Fantastic. So, yeah, so anyway, yeah, so that's how they can just go to our website, and it comes comes right to your door via UPS. Adventists love a good veggie meat, so uh, yeah. they'll be all yeah. over that. Cool. Absolutely. All right. all right, Matthew, it's a pleasure always, and I'm here for you. If you ever need me, give me a call, buddy. All right. And, uh, all, you know, all my love and, and positive thoughts to all your listeners, and uh, we need a little more love in the world, that's for sure. Remember, remember to live like us. You, you can't go wrong. Mm-hmm.